Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is May the 4th, 2018. May the 4th be with you. That's all I'll say about that today. I am kind of a Star Wars nerd, but we, uh, we are here to talk about things for self-sufficiency, self-reliance, liberty, independence, and all things modern survivalism, winning with money, winning with lifestyle design, winning with producing our own food, etc., And uh, so we have a pretty good lineup today, and of course it is Friday, 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 so it's time for the Monster Show of the Week. That is the Expert Council Q&A show, and i got a really great diverse group of topics for you today. We're going to start out with Ben Fitz on some comments about, we now have what are called ASIC miners for Ethereum, and how that impacts things in the cryptocurrency world. We have incorporating leafy greens into stir-fries with the illustrious Chef Keith Snow. We have dealing with the dead zones in the Gulf of Mexico with Jeff Lott. And this is actually a really important one to me. Um, it's something that's starting to come up again. You know, what do we do about this? And there's a million people with a million ideas, but Jeff actually has an answer to this. And I think this one's going to be important enough. I will probably, I don't know if it'll happen today, maybe over the weekend or next week. I'm going to break that segment out and put it on YouTube so it's individually shareable because I think that this is one of those things where the problem seems like something, there's nothing that we could ever do about it, or the things we need to do about it really are not practical from a standpoint of like keeping people alive and keeping agriculture running in the country, uh, where there actually is a, it, it's not an insignificant amount of work to be done, but it's an actually dramatically simple solution to a, a problem looks very complex. Uh, or in the words of, uh, of Jeff and, and uh, Jeff's mentor, Bill Mollison, while the problems of the world are increasingly complex, the solutions remain embarrassingly simple. Uh, you'll hear all about that today. We'll talk about farrowing pigs with Darby Simpson. Um, we have what is and what can be done about something called farmer lung with old Doc Bones. Growing food with potato, pa potato powers, potato towers with Nicholas Ferguson of HomegrownLiberty.com, and multi-generational learning with Mike and Sue LaPreeze, and then I'll anchor today's show with making spiced and herbed meads. So we'll have all of that, and we're going to go right into it today. Uh, and we're going to start out with a question on the impact of ASIC2 miners on Ethereum mining with Crypto Gulch's Ben Fitz. Ben, take it away. Hey, Jack and Survival Podcast listeners. This is Ben Fitz with Crypto Gulch. And I've got another question here for cryptocurrency, which comes in from Nick in Mongolia. Mongolia, the country, Nick? If so, that's really cool. Didn't know we had listeners in Mongolia. Um, the question is, will Bitmain's announced upcoming release of an Ethereum ASIC make Ethereum GPU mining impractical in the near future? Does it still make sense to invest in conventional GPUs for Ethereum, or would mining other cryptos be more favorable? So Nick, uh, essentially, he goes on to tell me he's got a rig already and he's looking to expand. And then he asks one more question. I've seen talk of fork proposals to make Ethereum more ASIC resistant. How likely is that to happen or would it have much effect? So let's go back and talk about Ethereum ASICs. Um, ASICs have their place in the mining ecosystem. 
Basically, when it's profitable enough for a company to develop ASICs, they develop them. Um, but typically, you have a large period of time where a coin is mineable by GPUs and not ASICs because it's not profitable enough to the companies to spend all that time developing an ASIC. Um, and they want to also see that their investment is going to be worthwhile. So there's lots of coins out there. If they create an ASIC, they want that project to have a lot of life. You know, they want it to have a long lifespan so that their ASICs are um, in demand. <laughs> if they put in all that, uh, all that research and development into a ASIC that is only going to be used for six months because the coin goes defunct, then that's a lot of wasted money. So um, it's just normal for coins to progress to from GPU to ASIC eventually. Um, we've had a few good years of mining Ethereum on GPUs, and now, you know, it's transitioning over to ASICs. I guess we've had like four years with Ethereum. Um, so it is going to affect the profitability for mining Ethereum with GPUs. Just be aware of that. It's already affecting the profitability, and every month there will be more Ethereum ASICs out there. At first, they're going to be in Bitcoin and Bitmain in their own farm. They have a huge farm or farms that they're already mining with their ASICs on. So it's how they're testing as well. Um, and that's going to affect the profitability of the coin. And then come June or July, those ASICs are going to start reaching the public. Um, the ASICs that they sold last week are, I think, supposed to deliver in June. So... You know, that's also going to start driving the profitability that down for miners that are using GPUs. Um, so just be aware of that. The great thing about GPUs is you can mine anything with a GPU. There's hundreds of coins out there that you can mine with a GPU. And you can always switch it. Um, you know, there's always going to be something else out there that's going to be profitable because, quite frankly... People will target the GPU miners in order to get interest in their project. So, you know, you don't want to, if you've got a market of people who are willing to spend millions of dollars on GPUs, or even, you know, the home user with a $5,000 rig or two, you know, those are great people to target. Those are cryptocurrency enthusiasts. So, you know, there's always going to be some use for GPUs. Now, some are going to be ASIC resistant. Monero, for example, is an ASIC resistant currency. They rewrote Monero entirely from scratch. Like they didn't fork a previous coin and, and use that as the code base to develop their own coin from, like a lot of coins out there. So it's easier for Monero to do this. They started out with that intention from the beginning. So when you jump from your Intel Pentium processor to your video card when mining um, Monero, you get much less performance improvement. And the same when you go from mining on your video card, your GPU, to mining with an ASIC in Monero, you get much less performance improvement. So they did that on purpose. For other coins, it's a lot harder to do that. For Ethereum, for example... 
they're already working on the next version of Ethereum. They're working on something called Casper. They're working on switching over to proof of stake, which, by the way, would make ASICs meaningless because if you switched over to a pure proof of stake model, uh, mining goes away. Um, so they're gambling. Bitmain is gambling that the ASICs are going to be profitable for, you know, another year or two before going proof of stake. Um, the longer, the better. And um, Ethereum, on the other hand, wants to go proof of stake. So I think that's more likely than them forking to change the algorithm. Um, they're already doing all this work. Why change it? Why take a step back and, and stop working on that to work on changing the algorithm um, just to thwart the ASIC miners? You know, I don't think the programmers of Ethereum really care about that that much. That's not been their goal. It's been Monero's goal from the beginning. So Monero has had a goal of making it be GPU and ASIC resistant from the very beginning. So I don't think that'll happen with Ethereum. Um, I do think that there will be a lot of opportunities here if you're still buying rigs. Um, there's going to be other coins that you can mine. I mean, for example, it may be profitable to mine a Monero on your rig. Um, it might be profitable to mine Zcash. It might even be profitable to mine one of the other alternatives to Ethereum, like Expanse or Ethereum Classic. Um, who knows? Um, who knows what's going to happen? I think it'll be interesting over the next few months to see what happens. And um, I, I myself have not bought any of the ASICs because I just, I have a few ASICs, um, but I, I don't, I haven't bought any of the Ethereum ASICs because it's just so risky. Um, I hate having that investment in something that may not be profitable in the future, you know, because it's so specific. It, it, it only does one thing well. You can't switch it to another algorithm. And I hate that about the ASICs. Uh, but maybe that's just me and maybe I'm weird that way. Um, but anyway, Nick, uh, good luck with your mining. And thank you, everybody, for listening to the Survival Podcast. All right, so next up I have a, sh a question for Chef Keith Snow on incorporating leafy greens into stir fries. Chef, take it away. Hey, Chef Keith Snow with HarvestEating.com and FoodStorageFeast.com. Wanted to answer Charlie's question about stir-frying leafy greens. Basically, he wants to know if you can do it and uh, a little bit about that subject. So, Charlie, here's the deal, man. Um, leafy greens are something that everybody should be eating a lot more of, uh, maybe three, four, five cups of this stuff a day. And it can be difficult to get that much into your diet, but um, using creative and fun ways to cook like wok cooking as well as the blender and other methods to get these greens into your body is uh, is a good thing. And they have plenty of vitamin K and just, just a really great uh, nutritional profile, so everybody should be eating them. Now, let me just speak about greens in general really quick. Um, some of the ways that I use them, I frequently, I don't know, frequently, two, three times a week will make... Uh, a smoothie with um, kale, usually raw kale, and I prefer the dinosaur kale myself. So I will take um, three or four decent-sized stalks of that and just kind of break it up. It's already been cleaned and washed. I put it down inside of my Vitamix. On top of it will go half of a banana and some low-carb 
type berries, usually blackberries, which I love, um, or blueberries. And then a couple of tablespoons of ground flaxseed meal. Um, I buy it in big bags from Bob's Red Mill. And then some type of liquid, whether it be water or almond milk or sometimes coconut milk, um, a few ice cubes, and and those blackberries are frozen, by the way. And then I blend up that whole thing. And that is a great way to get some greens uh, down the hatch, so to speak. However, I will point out that many um, nutritionist types often say that um, greens are better, um, the, the nutrition from greens is better absorbed into your body if they're cooked. Now, this is contrary to a lot of raw foodists out there who say, you know, it's best to have it raw, but in the case of greens, cooking it a little bit makes it more digestible. So keep that in mind. That's just a, a basic sort of um, thing when you talk about greens. Now, um, speaking more to your question, can you stir fry greens? You absolutely can because, like I just mentioned, you can eat them raw and you can eat them in any sort of stage of cooking from you know, 45 minutes in, in a pot like they do down south or something quick like a stir fry. Now, uh, Jack had pointed out that when he cooks with greens, he'll toss them in at the very end in, in that type of a situation. And uh, definitely with something like spinach, um, you don't need a lot of cooking for these things. And they, you know, they'll wilt up pretty good. But when you have some greens that are a little more hardy, like kale or collards or beet greens or mustard greens, a little bit more cooking or higher heat, uh, will do just fine, but you don't need to cook them to death, in other words. Now, I enjoy them both ways. In stir-fries also, I mean, I'm a sucker for that um, pot of collard greens with a little bit of vinegar that you get down south, and um, I think that's a, a lovely way to eat them. But let's talk a little bit more about um, wok cooking. I'm going to give you a quick recipe. Now, I'm a big fan of Thai food. I think it's one of the best cuisines in the world. Shout out to my good friends in western Montana who uh, cook a lot of Thai food. But here's a dish. It's called Pad Siu, and that's E-W. So it's, uh, and I don't know what it stands for, what it means. Basically, it's a very simple stir fry with the addition um, usually of Chinese broccoli. Now, if you're thinking American type broccoli or, or uh, I forget what the the, the real name is, but this is a leafy green. It's got a lot of stems. It, it would look a little more like a collard green than the broccoli we think of. And that's what they use in that dish now. It also has some rice noodles. And these are, I've never seen them, even at my Asian store, <clears throat> I've never seen them, but they're wide, flat rice noodles for this dish. I'm sure you could substitute some regular rice noodles. Um, these are gluten-free for you paleo folks out there that avoid grain. Um, but basically it goes like this, a couple tablespoons of, um, oil, you know, coconut oil would probably be a good one here. So you get your wok ripping hot and then, um, the oil goes in a couple of cloves of minced garlic and don't skimp on the garlic. I mean, this is, uh, one thing with Thai food is they, they season it in heavy with the aromatics. So, you know, maybe three large cloves of garlic. Toss those down in the oil. Just start to stir fry for a minute. And then you need to put in, I don't know, about, let's say, a cup and a half to two cups of meat. Now, this could be really anything. Traditionally, it's going to be chicken <clears throat> or pork, usually sometimes beef. Uh, but chicken does work well. And if you want to use chicken thighs, those are going to need a little more time to cook. 
of course, than chicken breasts, but make sure they're cut up into small pieces and you start to stir fry the uh, chicken or, or pork with the garlic and the oil for a couple of minutes. Then you're going to put in your greens. Now, let's just say that you have some washed, cut up collard greens. When I say cut up, you don't want you know, three and four inch wide pieces. Those tend to be a little clumsy to cook, so you may want to chop it up a little finer. Um, you could either you can e- even slice them into small ribbons too. That's a, a way that they cook a little bit faster, um, but you, you can deal with that. So you put in about a handful, and a handful could be quite a bit. So a good handful of your collard greens will go in and start to stir fry those together with the beef, the oil, and the garlic, and just toss it around for a minute or so. And you have to be paying attention to the garlic. You don't want it to be burnt. Now, I say a hot wok. Uh, I'm not talking about an inferno, but I don't want it to be um, cool either. So just keep, um, you know, watch your temperature. So you toss the broccoli in. I mean, the uh, the greens in this case, we're talking about collards. So you toss them around for a few minutes. And then you're going to um, take an egg and crack an egg into the bottom of the pan and start to um, let it, you know, start to coagulate a bit. And if you wanted to put a little bit more oil, a teaspoon more oil, um, or, you know, a little spoonful of coconut oil on top of, I mean, down before you put the egg, that's great too. Um, it may stick a little bit to the bottom of your wok depending upon what you have, but it's not a big deal. You're going to just scrape it all up in a minute. But when it starts to um, cook a bit, take your um, spoon or your wok utensil, as it were, and start to um, mix it together and then toss the whole thing around and keep stir-frying. You're going to want a tablespoon of light soy sauce and then something like a half a tablespoon of dark sweet soy sauce. And that you can find on Amazon. And if you're interested, a half a teaspoon of sugar helps this dish. So toss it all around, turn the heat off, um, and of course you somewhere in there towards the end you're going to put those rice noodles. And those rice noodles are uh, already soft, so don't take you know crispy rice noodles out of the package and throw them in there. You have to follow the instructions. A lot of them will require um, you take the rice noodles, put them in a bowl, cover them with boiling water, and let them sit for 15 or 20 minutes. Um, just depending upon what the noodles say. So make sure those are pre-cooked. Those are going to go in there. Um, right when you put in the broccoli, you'll throw the, the noodles in there and just stir this whole thing around. Um, and like I said, that half teaspoon of sugar is not a lot of sugar, but it balances the dish out. Now in Thai, you're going to find, um, sweet, salty, and spicy are your, uh, main sort of flavors there. And if you don't put a little bit of sugar in there, it might seem a little out of whack. Now, you don't want to put in tablespoons of this stuff because this is not dessert. So a little half teaspoon, if this is going among, you know, four adults or so, you're not getting that much sugar. So when it's all um, done, you're going to plate it up. And this particular dish, it's interesting that they garnish it usually with um, pepper, and I'm talking about black pepper, and you can grind up, uh, and you should use not that crap that you get on, at the restaurant in the little um, pepper shakers, because that's that stuff is stale garbage. I'm talking about, um, you can take whole peppercorns and, you know, put them in a, a molcajete or, um, you know, mortar and pestle, or you can uh, just take your pepper grinder and grind, and I'm talking a good bit, maybe a tablespoon or two, 
and you sprinkle that on top. And the other thing that's very classic with this is um, ground up red chili flakes. Now, I've watched my Thai friends spoon this stuff onto their meals in just amazing quantities. Uh, for most of us Americans, that will burn our mouths out. Uh, but the Thai people seem to just relish this stuff. And it really makes this dish. So you get a good, let's say you've got a plate of it, a good I mean, we'll go a little easy. Let's say a teaspoon of black pepper on top and maybe a quarter teaspoon to a half teaspoon of this ground up red chili flake on top. And you have something that is quite amazing here. A little bit of chicken, those nice greens in there, the, the sour, sweet sort of thing going on. Actually, there wasn't much sour in there, but the, the salty and sweet thing going on and also the heat at the end makes a very um, wonderful dish. So, Charlie, that's a, a quick way. Now, I talked about it for five minutes, but probably you could cook it in less time than that. But it's a good way to use your greens in the wok. But don't be afraid. I mean, no matter what you're cooking in the wok, uh, and I do this all the time, even sometimes in the morning, I will take... um I'll, do, I'll make a stir fry for breakfast. So I'll take a, an onion and some garlic, throw it in my wok. And uh, if I'm using coconut oil, a lot of times I'll use refined coconut oil. Now, unrefined coconut oil will make the house, um, I'm going to use the word stink. Uh, if you really love coconut oil and coconut, great. Um, but sometimes the refined stuff, it cooks the same as un, um, as unrefined, but it doesn't bring as much sort of coconut smell. And to me, I am not into that much coconut smell. Now, while I keep both types of oil, when I'm doing a wok cook, um, I'll sometimes reach for the refined stuff. And uh, you can find that in just about any store. Just look for the word refined. So an onion um, minced up, some garlic minced up, a little bit of coconut oil goes into my wok. And then farm fresh eggs, uh, will be whipped up and sitting on the side. I usually put in some bell peppers in there and then a good handful of greens. And it could be any type. Uh, a lot of times it's, it's kale, but if I can get mustard greens, terrific. But I'll toss those in there with the whole thing. In will go the eggs and I'll mix that whole thing up and you have something uh, quite wonderful. Little stir fry for breakfast. You could also toss, uh, leftover rice in there and make sort of a uh, a fried rice out of it. Uh, this is a cuisine that does love to use up day-old rice, and day-old rice is actually better in that dish than, than fresh-cooked rice. So that's just another way, Charlie, that you can use greens in your wok. But no matter what, don't be afraid, and uh, they're usually pretty cheap, so experiment with them. And the biggest point is trying to get you know, four or five, six cups of these things into your body as often as possible. So I hope that helps, and I hope everybody in TSP land has a great weekend. I will throw out one um, plug. The the uh, cost of the food storage feast has been raised to its uh, old level. I will honor the $99 cost for any of you TSPers and even a lower cost for MS beers. So if you're interested, Keith at HarvestEating.com. And uh, that's it, Jack. Thanks, man. Have a great weekend. Hope those ducks are doing well down on the farm. Later. All right, next up I have a, uh, a really important segment. Uh, like I said, I'm going to break this out on YouTube so that it can be shared when this subject comes up. I've been seeing it come up frequently in social media and on Facebook. And it's the concept that every year... Uh, we, we have problems year-round, but every year, specifically in the summer, as temperatures rise 
as uh, rain increases, uh, as uh, fertility that has been uh, dumped onto our agricultural fields throughout the mid-United mid States is all washed into, and it's a combination of fertilizer, uh, just plain old runoff, uh, and uh, animal waste. It goes into the Mississippi River system, and what you end up with is a giant cloud of death uh, at the Mississippi River Delta where it enters the ocean. This is not one of those eco-crazy things. This is a real thing that really happens every year. And it's not the only one, but it is one of the, the, the biggest ones that occurs. We're literally, for a huge space coming out of the Mississippi River, everything dies. Everything either leaves or dies for a period of several months every year. This obviously is not good. And the there are many proposed solutions, and none of them really have a firm grasp of reality. But this does not have to be a complicated thing to fix. And while this would be a multi-billion dollar uh, project if it was done end-to-end, -end, which is what it really needs to have done to it, 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 the total cost would be a rounding error compared to what our government spends every year in, in reality. It would not be that significant of a cost, and it could be a major economic boom in many ways. The... Well, the, the, the reduction in loss in ocean life alone and what it would mean for the fishing industry in the Gulf of Mexico would pay it back in just a few years. Just that one dividend. Not to mention we wouldn't be screwing up the planet as bad and all of the other things that it would do. And the only person I know who's proposed a logical, sane, implementable solution that actually can be implemented without a lot of argument honestly if we if we decided we wanted to do this this isn't like a lot of environmental solutions where you'd immediately have these two camps and they would have this diametric opposition to each other because it's not really going to take anything from anybody it's not going to really change what anybody has to do on an ongoing basis it's simply a matter of creating riparian and buffer zones and some other things and with that I'll go ahead and turn this over to Jeff Lawton and I think this To me, I feel in many ways this is like one of like the challenges of our generation. This is one of those things that we can fix and we should fix. And Jeff will tell you here how we could do it and how if we could um, if we could ever obtain the opportunity to just do one catchment just up at the top of the, the, the river system, we could prove that it works. It would be a measurable, demonstrative uh, result that would be you know you would be able to go yes, it works. And at that point, it would make sense to just do the whole thing. Jeff, please explain this. Now, I've been asked to make a comment on the Mississippi River because apparently there's a lot going around about the dead zone issue. And um, this is something that I've been passionately involved in. And I'd just like to verify my involvement in previous years i was contracted by the army corps of engineers to redesign an army ammunition manufacturing plant for a brand zone projects um as a eco-industrial park which was a proposal set up by one of my students vic guadagno now we we came in and we redesigned that landscape in the louisiana 
army ammunition manufacturing plant in northern Louisiana, in Minden, near Shreveport, Bossier City. So that's in the hill country of Louisiana. We were on the bio door cheat, and that, that started my engagement with Louisiana. And for uh, just about four years, we went back and forwards. And I've got to say, I love that country, and, and I love the people in the south. Um, they're, re- they're people that really know about the landscape and the wildlife and, and, and the wetlands and everything about the, the, the outdoors, really. Now, that actually got finished up in, when 9-11 happened and all kinds of security issues, but we got quite a long way down the track. In the meantime, we'd started... Um, to accept invitations to lecture at Lafayette University and eventually Tulane University in New Orleans. And, um, and then that went on to actually working with the Cypress Academy, who are the people that are trying to recover the, um, the stability of the, of the Cypress ecosystem of the um, swamps in the south there. And um, that meant we had to understand how um, the river worked, um, the Atchafalaya Swamp, its, its um, involvement with the Mississippi and the movement of the mouth of the Mississippi over hundreds of years, the deposition belts that now most towns are built on, and of course, again, the re-engagement with the Army Corps of Engineers who built the levee banks and the barrage dams that almost go up to the Canadian border. And we were asked, what would we do, this very question, what would you do to um, repair the catchment in the Mississippi. And um, the problems that have now occurred with the dead zone and the draining of the Mississippi catchment, which is just about a third of North America and a little bit of Canada as well. So um, I put quite a lot of thought into this. And it's just a large catchment, an order two river. And it's uh, one of those giant rivers the only order one river is in the Amazon, and the top seven rivers in the world after the Amazon equal the Amazon. So it's a giant, it's a massive um, catchment. Now, really, you've got to start at the top of each catchment. That's each branch of the catchment tree. It could be anyone. And if they gave us just one, if they gave us the top of one catchment, we could prove this because we'd have the exit point through the catchment to measure the water quality. But all we have to do is start at the top of each catchment each branch of the river, where it starts, where its bio-shed, bio its watershed starts. And we start to slow down the infiltration. Instead of having an extraction system which extracts silt and deposits silt further and further downstream, all we need to do is we need to slow down the flow of the water, spread it out and sink it and soak it when we're, when we're working with water by design, we either soak it or direct hardware runoff towards soakage or we drain the landscape at a low inclination, not too steep, so it flows gently away from an area and then soaks in because when we soak water, it still moves at right angle to contour. That's... The const, one, of the con, one of the many constants of water is it moves at right angle to contour, and then it procreates life. Now, when we run water out on contour and soak it in, the byproduct of that is forests, ecosystems majoring in trees, all ecosystems major in trees, or well, nearly all of them, and 
at least woody material mostly. So the trees then become the stabilizing point of the rehydration system. The water still ends up in the same place at the mouth of the Mississippi eventually, but it goes through filtration of biological systems. So we get an increased diversity of species from the soil right through to the canopy. We get a life-rich abundance which mitigates floods and mitigates droughts. So we have less floods, less droughts, a cleaner, life-rich water system. But we do it by taking the water through the longest path over the most distance, over the most time to create the most fertile potential event. Now, those tree systems themselves can be productive by design. We can design ecosystems of production. And yes, they're not all native trees, but they still function as a native, as a native ecosystem does function. In fact, they can, they can function better by design. And in between these swale lines in between these contour lines we can fall slightly off contour we can use key line systems we can go into production of convenience with parallel lines but the major mainframe needs to harmonize with the shape of the landscape which is a, in a continuum form it's a continuum of form shaped by the energies of the climates whether they're humid climates or dryland climates the major two climate landscape forms of this planet are humid and arid, and they have particular forms. So when we harmonize with those forms, we slow down the main life-enhancing energy, which is water, and we take it through biological filtering systems. Now, we can test this. We can test the exit point from each catchment each top catchment of a river. We can prove it within one catchment. So that water will have more oxygen. It will have more life. It will have less turbidity. And that in itself, if we work from the top down to the mouth, we will stop. We will diminish and we will eventually stop the dead, dead zone event. Because there won't be any deoxygenation of water. There won't be this continuous extraction of materials and silts and other unwanted elements in the flow at the mouth of the Mississippi into the Gulf of Mexico. Now, the very encouraging thing here is having worked with the Army Corps of Engineers, they have already achieved amazing civil engineering, absolutely amazing American ability of can do if you want to do it. But they haven't followed harmonious design. Now, it's not their fault. They've just done heavy, large civil engineering and incredible, incredible size and incredible capability is already there in position. They have the equipment, they have the capability, they have the technology. Today we definitely have the mapping. We can do this. And it has to be done sooner or later. Because there is a very large geological issue happening at the mouth of the Mississippi. There is a geological tilt that's dropping two inches a year. And that is a natural occurrence of, of geology. And it used to be compensated by the deposition, the natural deposition, 
or really mostly organic matter trapped by the giant cypress swamps. And what we've done is we've directed with check dams and weirs, levee banks and all kinds of very large, amazing civil engineering so that there is not the variant happening where every hundred years or so the Mississippi changes its course through the Atchafalaya swamp, an amazing ecological system, and, and, and traps more natural organic material, building the deposition banks up and compensating for the geological tilt. So we know the geological tilt's going down. All we have to do is think smart about how we do this, how we plan the ecological traps. We, we actually only have to do the hard engineering. If we just want it to, 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 to rebuild itself with biology, it'll rebuild it on its own, but it won't be as useful as if we actually put it to beneficial productive use that, that supplies us with extra requirements, extra needs of humanity, which we can do. We can do it by smart design. So that's my take on it. It's, it would be one of the greatest, ex, most exciting jobs in, in recent or probably future history. It, it's something that would set a precedence that all major rivers and even minor rivers and insignificant rivers need to adopt. And it's part of the, the human behaviours that we have to engage in to make this planet the abundant, incredible, life-rich system that we know it could be there you go so i'm not going to say when i put this on youtube go share it you know far and wide non-stop because you know that's you call them a science syndrome sometimes people get weary of that but this this subject is has come up a lot this year already and as we head into the summer months you're going to see this come up and kind of keep it in your back pocket when people point this out then respond. And I think that's one of the best ways we can address problems is wait until somebody's talking about the problem uh, before we propose the solution. Uh, not necessarily wait for the problem to be in our face, but when we're trying to win hearts and minds, this isn't something that's going to happen tomorrow morning, unfortunately. But I think it really makes a lot of sense now that you know there is an answer to this, instead of just saying, oh, we got to stop conventional farming or whatever. No, what we have to do is fix the problem. Because even if we did a lot of the other things that would mitigate the situation, the way things are going now, we would still have a huge problem. This would actually stop the problem and be a huge economic boon to the, the, the central United States and the Gulf region as well. Anyway, next up, I have a question on farrowing pigs for Darby Simpson. Hey there, everyone. This is Darby Simpson of Simpson Family Farm and the Grass-Fed Life Podcast calling in to answer another TSP expert question this week from Matt in the Northwoods of Wisconsin. And he's got some questions about pigs. His main question is, how can I run pastured feeder pigs together with our breeding stock yet kept them fed properly? And here are some details. He's been raising pastured hogs for the last three years. His sows are getting a bit too fat, and the feeders are uh, finishing out a bit too small. Uh, he says they, they free choice feed organic grain while they're rotating them on their paddocks throughout the spring, summer, and fall. 
Um, he's got a theory uh, that, you know, by feeding everyone the same feed, which is 16% protein early and 14% late, the sows are getting too fat and consuming too much feed to maintain their proper body conditioning. And uh, his, his feeder pigs, you know, they're, they're not able to keep up. Um, you know, it's, it's a, that's a big deal, you know, because at the end of the day, it's your feeder pigs that are making you money. So if the sows are literally hogging the feed area, uh, the other guys who are the money makers can't get to the feed. Um, so he's kind of wondering, you know, what are my thoughts here? He's asking, have I seen any kind of a mobile feeder that he could use to restrict access to some of the pigs, uh, you know, and, and kind of separate them or whatever, uh, he's concerned about trying to just use a single hot wire or two with a sow that, you know, if there's something she wants on the other side of the fence, she's going to get her head under there, uh, take the hit from the shock and get over there and get it. And Matt, I, I totally agree. That's exactly what that sow is going to do. I think to answer your original question, you're trying to put a square peg in a round hole. I, I, Personally, in the interest of full disclosure, I no longer farrow on my farm for many, many reasons I've discussed on the Grass-Fed Life podcast. And I'm not going to go into that here, but I do not farrow anymore. I have farrowed. Um, what I will tell you is that I think you need to run your pigs in two separate groups uh, for the sake of efficiency. Um, I, I realize that this increases the workload and reduces your profitability from the aspect of labor. But my assumption is that you're going to make all that up by having fatter uh, stocker pigs that you're, you're finishing out, your feeder pigs. So I, I think that that's really what you need to do. I have not seen any kind of an apparatus like you're describing here where you can – Essentially, you're, you're trying to separate them anyway. You're just trying to do it maybe with like a single hot wire or something like that. And, you know, I, I think when it comes to pigs, you know, uh, uh, sows and, and feeder pigs need to be kept separate for obvious reasons. Those are my thoughts because their feed requirements are different. The protein requirements are different. There's just, you know, so many different uh, nutritional needs that – really are just, um, they're too varied, I think, to run them together. Uh, your, your protein, even, you know, 16%, I mean, that's that probably is too high uh, for your sows. And if they're not letting little guys up to the feeder, I mean, they're costing you money. They're costing you money. So I, my, my opinion is you separate them into two separate groups um, or, or, you you know, maybe you just don't farrow anymore. Maybe you just buy feeder pigs like I do and just finish out the feeder pigs. So that's one of the reasons I, I don't farrow. It literally is a whole nother enterprise within the farm business structure. And, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a one man wrecking crew. And, uh, uh, from a personal contextual standpoint, like farrowing isn't anything that, you know, I get all happy and excited about. I'm a producer, um, so I just want to get feeder pigs and finish them and take them to a butcher and then, you know, do the marketing and collect a profit. Uh, but everybody's different. Your contextual wants and desires might be different than mine. You know, farrowing might be something that you really enjoy doing and, and uh, you know, you want to keep doing it. Or maybe you like having the entire, you know, farrow to fork 
on your farm for a, from a marketing standpoint. I mean, that's certainly a bonus. And if you're, if you're not marketing that way, you should, uh, I think it gives you a, a very distinct advantage in marketing. So, you know, I guess at the end of the day, um, I'll just go back to square peg round hole. Um, and I, I think you just need to separate them into to two groups and, and treat them as two separate enterprises, really, and run the numbers separately. I, I think that's the bigger thing here. Are you really making any money by farrowing on farm? I think when most farms run the numbers many, many times, they are surprised to learn that farrowing really doesn't pencil out as well as they thought it would. And um, that, that was what I found. Um, I could go buy feeder pigs cheaper than I could farrow them on farm. I, it was a no brainer for me because it saved me tons and tons of time and it saved me money. So when you can save time and money, uh, you call that a win and you, at least in my book and, uh, you move forward from there. So, uh, that's what I would tell you, Matt. I, I don't know if there's a, you know, somebody out there maybe has got this figured out. Uh, if there's some kind of, you know, magical solution, but I, my, my guess is no, I, I think you've got two separate groups. You manage them as two separate businesses in, in two separate herds and, uh, track your numbers carefully. Make sure it's paying you to, to farrow on farm. So there you go. Uh, for everyone else, this sounds interesting to you. Check out the, uh, check out the podcast I do with Diego Footer every Monday, grass fed life. We are approaching episode 100. In fact, by the time you hear this, we might be at episode 100. Um, been doing it for over two years now. A lot of good stuff out there. A lot of free resources at the website, grassfedlife.co. Uh, free blog articles, the, the podcast, resource links, all kinds of free content out there. If what we just discussed here with Matt is interesting to you, if you think, you know, I'd like to go raise some pigs and make some money. Um, you know, on, on our farm, we net around $800 per retail pig, $850 per retail pig. That's how, that's our profit. Um, if that sounds interesting to you, if you want to do this maybe as a, you know, a side hustle, um, but with intent to make money or if you're you know, interested in doing it full time, I would encourage you to check out farmbusinessessentials.com. There's a full A to Z course out there on how to uh, plan, grow, market your farm, business structure, legal entities, accounting, retail pricing, you name it, we cover it. Um, Literally, uh, 23 modules and growing downloadable spreadsheets, downloadable guides, videos, uh, plans for you know how to build things like chicken tractors. We're going to be adding other digital resources as we move forward. This thing just keeps growing and growing and growing. I would encourage you to check that out if you're truly interested in farming for profit. Invest in yourself. Don't do what I did and uh, do it the god-awful, painful, long, slow, tedious way and nearly blow yourself up. Uh, learn from someone who's been there, done that, and uh, save yourself a lot of time and heartache and, and, frankly, be more profitable a whole lot faster as a result. So, anyway, thanks for sending in the questions, guys. Keep them coming. I enjoy answering them for you. Uh, as always, everyone, have a wonderful weekend and take care. So now we uh, we just heard from a farmer. We're going to hear about something called farmer lung and hear from Doc Bones on that. Doc, take it away. 
Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of www.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over a thousand articles, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. I'm also the co-author of the 2017 Book Excellence Award winner in medicine, The Survival Medicine Handbook, the essential guide for when medical help is not on the way. This week's question is from Kieran, a.k.a. Michael, who writes, My question is, do you have any advice on herbal or natural treatments or cures for a lung condition known as farmer's lung? A near neighbor to me has this condition, probably got it from working with hay dust, possibly mold dust from bad hay or bad straw, over many years in a damp climate. Michael, farmer's lung is a hypersensitivity reaction in lung tissue associated with, as you say, intense or repeated exposure to biologic dusts. These biologic dusts include hay dust, mold spores like actinomyces or aspergillus organisms, or chaff from agricultural byproducts. The condition is relatively uncommon here in the U.S., affecting maybe 0.5% or so of farmers. In Asia, it's more like 6%. Farmer's lung can be acute due to a major exposure, but usually gets better as a result of avoiding the dust that causes the reaction. The condition can progress, however, to a more chronic state, which causes permanent damage to lung tissue, decline in respiratory health, and eventually could become life-threatening. Symptoms include fever and chills, especially after an acute exposure to moldy hay or contaminated compost. You'll see victims also complaining of cough, runny nose, bloody sputum, tightness of the chest, and difficulty breathing. Symptoms often spontaneously resolve within 12 hours or so, or maybe a few days, if exposure to the causative agent is eliminated or avoided. Over time, however, continued exposure causes chronic cough, shortness of breath, loss of appetite, leading to weight loss. Irreversible lung damage is the final outcome. Treatment for acute disease commonly involves the use of corticosteroids like prednisone. Medicines used for asthma like chromaline sodium, however, don't seem to help too much. Even websites like naturalcuresfor.com don't have any alternative therapies to offer for farmer's lung. Now, some feel homeopathic remedies may help, but honestly, you'll have to speak to a homeopath for that. I really can't tell you. The only prevention for farmer's lung disease is to ventilate the work areas that put workers at risk and use face masks to filter out the bad stuff that's attempting to enter the lungs through the air. I would think, Kieran, that your friend has some chronic disease, which means that there's been permanent damage to the lung. It's very possible that there's lung tissue that, well, might just not be there anymore. In bad cases that are resistant to steroids, oxygen therapy is an option to give some relief. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, besides getting a copy of our Survival Medicine Handbook, don't forget to check out our entire line of medical kits and supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. That's store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. Okay, so everything you ever needed to know about farmer lug and basic respiratory health as well. Uh, next up, we have a uh, segment from Nick Ferguson on growing lots of food with something called a potato tower. Nick, take it away. Hey there, TSP listeners, Nick Ferguson here, back from a whole stinking month of traveling and touring the USA, helping people plan out years of work in the form of consulting. Man, I was on the road, I think, all but like maybe three or four days in April. 
It was a long trip. So just to let you know, I probably actually have a couple short trips coming up to Texas in the next month or two. So if you were wanting to get on on one of those, shoot me an email. I'd like to get a couple more scheduled before the heat starts to really set in. I'll probably be in the DFW area and all over East Texas as well as down a little west of Houston and all over Southeast Texas. So shoot me an email to nick at homegrownliberty.com and I'll put you on the tour schedule. Now on to the question for the week from Trevor. And he says, question, what is the secret to getting a potato tower to actually produce more than typical hilling? Details. That was very good question phrasing. He had the question Asked the short question and then had the details. I love it, Trevor. Good job on that. Um, The details. Last year, I attempted a potato tower. I used a four-foot diameter welded fence, straw base and sides, topsoil with some compost in the center, and kept it moist. I ordered a pound of Yukon Gold potatoes. I put in four one-ounce slips in the tower and threw the rest of the pound into one of my beds. Both the tower and the beds produced nice-looking plants. I hilled the bed potatoes about 9 inches and piled in more topsoil in the tower, probably about 24 inches total. All said and done, the tower only had potatoes at the bottom, probably about 1 pound. The remaining garden bed produced about 3 pounds. 4 pounds from 1 pound is fine, but based on the hype, I was expecting like 10 or 20 pounds. I'm singling you out, Nick. Uh Uh-oh, he's calling me out. Because one of your earlier podcasts was on this very subject, I've heard some people say it works great like you and other people like me have tried it and haven't had success. What's the secret? Is it the type of potato, the timing of the hilling? I have to know. Thanks, Trevor in Ohio. What would needs a few good taters? Potatoes. Boil them, mash them, stick them in a stew. Some of you are going to get that reference. <laughs> First off, let me clarify something If I didn't do so long ago when I brought up the potato tower thing, I don't think you will get more yield per pound of seed potato growing this way versus in the ground like they're typically grown. I did say and still say that you should get a higher yield per square foot of ground space because you're growing vertically. That's a difference between the two comparisons. One number is yield per pound of seed planted. The other is yield per square foot as measured by footprint, you know, looking down from above. And the difference is growing up versus across. The vertical growing uses less square feet of growing space because you're increasing surface area by growing up. The only time it really makes sense to grow that way is if you really want potatoes. You're short on square footage in your growing area, like you have a very small garden space, like a postage stamp backyard. Or if you physically can't hill the potatoes... And growing vertically is something you can physically do. Otherwise, it almost always makes more economical sense to just buy your potatoes from a grower or grow them in the ground. The tower method is great for the person who has, you know, something like a six by six, you know, six foot by six foot corner of a garden and nothing much will fit there. And you have some seed potatoes and you want to get some more calorie dense food harvested from the garden space. That's a good technique to use in that kind of a situation. So is it ever going to produce more than typical hilling? I don't think so. And I don't think I said so. If I did, I said that in error. Um, But let's hop on over to methodology and see if there are some improvements to growing potatoes in general that we could uh, incorporate here. So you said you used four 
one ounce slips. And now, if by slips, because I don't know what you're defining as a slip, if you mean cut sections of potato, then those are at the low end, half the size you should be making the pieces. On the low end, towards the larger size of potato piece, it would be one quarter of the size that I like to see going in the ground. If they're only one ounce little pieces, if they're slips that are just the potato shoot with no tuber actually attached, then I'd expect almost no yields, extremely low yields, since the plant would have almost zero starch reserves to draw from while establishing roots. I actually prefer to use whole small seed potatoes or large sections of cut seed potato. If you're growing something like a Yukon Gold, generally the smaller potatoes will be around the size of a kid's fist, so around like two to four ounces. And that's the size I shoot for with a seed potato. The pieces of potato, you know, if I have a larger one, I'm just going to cut it in half, so I'm still going for a two ounce to four ounce piece of potato, because you see the plant is using the starches in the tuber to produce roots and top growth, and the less of that energy store it has to draw from, it's like a battery bank. The slower and smaller it will grow. The smaller and slower it grows, well, the less energy it'll have to work with to build tubers when it starts setting the the tubers in the ground. So. Don't put out any tiny slips, or else you're going to have significantly reduced yields. Put out some decent-sized seed potatoes or some decent-sized cut、uh, pieces of potato. Now, the timing of the hilling is important. When I grow in the ground, I'll plant my potatoes and cover them. I'll normally plant them around four foot apart in rows, and by the end of the growing season, I'll have used all the available soil between each row to hill up to either side. And I'll start hilling as soon as the shoots are about six to eight inches high, and I'll cover them with soil until there's maybe only like a growing tip sticking out of the soil. And then I'll repeat that process as many times as I can with the soil to either side. And generally, I don't have enough dirt to do it more than like two, three, maybe four times. And with all that said, I have grown in a tater tower before and gotten around eight to nine pounds of yield per pound of seed I started with. Growing in ground, I get around nine to twelve pounds of yield per pound of seed. In a tower like what you described, I'd plant at least five pounds of potatoes, and that should return around forty to forty-five pounds of potatoes.、Uh, and so, man, I'm just gonna shoot you straight and maybe be a little harsh, but I'm speaking this in love, so don't take offense. I don't know what all went wrong with your potato growing experiment. Four pounds of yield from one pound of potatoes is awful. It's abysmal. So there were probably multiple things that kind of stacked up to get you a low yield. I don't know if it's fertility. There might have been a, nutri- a nutrient deficiency somewhere in in the string. There, they might not have gotten enough nitrogen and Phosphorus and potassium early in the growth、um, to put on enough vine to produce a lot of、uh, tuber. I, I don't know. Tip. It could be temperature. Could be multiple things. Typical stats, at least in Texas, are like 1,600 pounds to 2,200 pounds of seed per acre,、uh, with yields ranging from the low end. Of 5.6 pounds of harvested potatoes per one pound of seed planted. That's if you, you know, don't get the timing right. You have bad weather, etc. And the higher end of the yield spectrum being around 15.6 pounds of harvested potatoes per one pound of seed planted. 
So I'd suggest just doing some research on general guidelines for growing potatoes. Temperatures are very important. Uh, nighttime temperature will greatly impact uh, tuber set. Insect pressure can decrease yields. Timing of your plantings can make or break a harvest. So I'd say try growing in ground if you can and get some literature from your local ag extension agency on growing potatoes in your area. While I don't endorse using their conventional methods long term, I don't endorse using synthetic fertilizers and pesticides long term. What is most important, I think, is learning the skill set of horticulture and gardening first before we get into the more advanced methods and bold approaches to gardening. So, man, use pesticides and synthetic fertilizers to give yourself the advantage for the first year or two just to learn the basics of that gardening skill set or just to learn better how that particular crop grows and what it needs. And then once you have that crop learned or the gardening skill set learned better, then you can lean out your methods and you can get more advanced with growing organic. Afterwards, you can advance to growing in a more regenerative or permaculture way. You you just can't get there immediately without um, going through those baby steps. I'm still reverting back to the basics when I experience a setback. I go back to basics and reassess if needed all the time. So, you know, don't be afraid of that. Don't be don't think that you must do it perfect or not at all. I would rather see everyone do things subpar and get better at it and keep getting better and not give up and work on it every year and grow more of their own food and get better and better and better and more regenerative and sustainable as the years go by than to try and do it super cool and permaculture and organic and regenerative right off the get-go and then meet with failures and give up. So try growing them more conventionally to start with. After you learn that plant's particular quirks and needs, then I think it's a much better time to get creative with the alternative growing methods. So I hope that helps. I'm Nick Ferguson from HomegrownLiberty.com. And remember, guys, I have a few opportunities for consulting in the next month or two on my trips to Texas. So don't miss out on that chance. You can email me with questions on that or on grown potatoes if you want to. Nick at HomegrownLiberty.com. That's all I have for today. Hope you're having a wonderful week. Do good things. Good stuff from Nick. And now I have a segment on multi-generational learning from Mike and Sue LaPrice. For the expert counsel, hey Jack, ATSB community, today's question comes from Jim in East Texas, and his question is, do you have a recommendation for a curriculum book series, K-12? to And I've got to say, this is one of my favorite emails that we've gotten. This is details. I'm not homeschooling yet. Our children are grown. One is married, one is not. No grandchildren yet. I want to be prepared to homeschool our grandchildren if needed. I'll soon be retired. While I'm not trained formally as a teacher, every time I have done a skill or spiritual gift assessment, I score high in teaching. I have taught Sunday school for many years. We live on 100 acres and have a lot of opportunity to teach in the moment. I'm not concerned about teaching, just need to know what material I need to cover based on average age, intelligence, and motivation. Is there a book series that you would recommend? And Jim links to a book series, and we'll get back to that. And so I'd like to say uh, I just love this question. You know, in permaculture, there's the three ethics, the care of earth, care of the people, and then the return of surplus. 
Uh, and here we've got somebody who's preparing to return surplus. I think that's one of the things we don't necessarily think about is the passing on of knowledge and wisdom to future generations is really a return of surplus, Mm -hmm. which leads me to to talk a little bit about the extended family. So historically, um, extended families have lived together. And this, the, the separation of that is really a real current thing. So I think about in my own neighborhood when, where I grew up, I, my grandfather and I had an aunt, we, we lived in a house, it was the Laprise house, and across the street were the Galloways, and it was the Galloways house, and that was three generations, and up the street were the Cosgroves, and that was three generations, and down the street were the Leverolts, and that was three generations. And you come from a... Yeah, we grandparents lived with us. Your grandparents? And, and Jack my mom lived with us. Your mom lived, yeah. With, yeah, your mom lived with us for 11 years. And so we had multi-generation. And that it was a cultural thing that we've had, I think, historically for a long period of time. Um, and it worked really well, I think, like, when we think about uh, the farm age variations, right? It, it brings value together. If you had a farmer who is 70 years old, he doesn't necessarily have the strength of a 20 years old, but he has 50 years of farming knowledge and wisdom that he passes on to his son who might be in his mid-40s who's working the farm and running the farm, most of it, and then they might have a 20-year-old, his son, who's got a lot of strength. And so the three generations working together bring different things to the table. Yeah, and so one of the new things that we like is the new multi-generation or next-gen housing. And my brother just moved into one of those with his mother-in-law, and we got to go see the house. And it's really cool because they're all under one roof, there's separate entrances, there's separate garages, and it just makes it really easy to care for her. You don't have to run by the nursing home after work or another home or any of that. And then their when their daughter gets home from school, she gets to check on grandma and grandma loves that. You know, it's just like you get to see your grandkids every day. It's really really sweet. Yeah, we're hoping that what we're witnessing is a revived appreciation of family interdependency. Mm-hmm. Versus dependency on government. So on the question, it's really easy to buy stuff. And you say, what curriculum do I need? You want to just buy that stuff? And um, we have a lot of stuff. So I'm not being critical. I'm just saying the mental prep is the more important component of that. And to accomplish that healthy interdependency with your children, their children, you really have to educate yourself on what the simple basics are. What do kids really need to know? And so Jim has the book that we have, um, What Your Fifth Grader Needs to Know, is the one we have in front of us now. Our kids are roughly in fifth grade, our two that are still at home. And the Edie Hirsch book, it's um, a core knowledge series. So it's the basic knowledge from each age group from kindergarten through sixth grade. And it covers language arts, math, fine arts, geography, history, and science. And if you kind of look through the book, you would be surprised at how little we need to know as a culture that everybody knows. We need this core knowledge. And Edie Hirsch, the author of this book, is a theologian. Um, I also have his book, Validity and Interpretation and Other Things. He's a theologian and an educator. Yeah. So it's really, it's a a fabulous series. And it comes with um, little sayings 
that kids should know, like a penny saved is a penny earned, and it talks about what the moral value of that saying is. And on the other side of it would be nothing ventured, nothing gained. So there's a balance there, right? Saving and venturing, investing and saving, and we talk about that on uh, TSP. So the books series, each age level has a set of things, principles and concepts that kids should know. It's really cute. So for far less than $10 to get this book used, one of these books used, you can use this book for an entire year of homeschooling. No other curriculum is necessary for kindergarten through sixth grade. You can take the book and do the math work about your yard, your museum, the library, your house, grocery shopping, you know, whatever it is you're doing. You can pull things out of this book and add them. There's book lists of things to read, and you can find those online. But around 12, it gets a little more complicated. So you move into a different stage. You move from kind of the concrete grammar stage where you're just imparting information to the 12 to 15 stage where you have the dialectic or logic stage where you're identifying fallacies and arguments and you're learning to systematically remove all the contradictions so that you can produce knowledge that can be trusted by you and others. And then um, the rhetoric stage, where you're supposed to be learning how to persuade listeners, um, it's around 15. That our culture's done really good at, persuading listeners. But they've forgotten the dialectic, let's systematically remove contradictions part. So you hear these kids talking like they have this perspective and they're only 17, but you should do what they say because somehow they're so wise. Um, but you, you as an adult go, that ah, doesn't make sense. So we need to really focus on teaching kids in that dialectic logic stage. So as far as curriculum at that stage, um, it gets complicated because a lot of it has to do with what kids like to do. But the basics are math and writing. So around 14, most kids could start a remedial, remedial, not college level, but a remedial college arithmetic and writing. And that covers you from fifth grade up to college algebra or freshman composition. Now, if your kids are really great at math or they're really great at writing, um, they're going to excel in that. You're not going to have to work that hard. It's the kids that struggle. You're going to have to work harder to get them to a certain level. But um, it really comes down to foundational principles. So for math, for history and science, um, a lot of what we do, we have audio books. We listen to Audible um, for our history books and literature. And then when the kids ask questions, I kind of type it into my phone while we're out listening, driving around. And then we'll come home and we'll do some YouTubes on that. And our, like, for example, we were listening to Carry On Mr. Bowditch, which is a fabulous book. I recommend it for anybody about a young, very poor boy. It's a true story. And he designed this new textbook on sailing that saved lives. I mean, he's a mathematician and it was just his process of learning because he loved to learn and he continued to learn. But then all these concepts come up in the book and like my kids are 10, 11 and they don't know a lot about 
nautical terms. And so we would come back to YouTube and watch them. Like, what does a sextant look like? What does a ship from the late 1700s look like? What does it mean to shoot the moon? What does it mean to shoot the moon? It was really interesting. So this young man developed a new technique on that that was fabulous. And so anyways, it's just getting all that, just loving to learn and finding resources. And we are honestly... We're using fewer and fewer books because the Internet is faster, it's easier, and it has that multidimensional learning where my auditory person is hearing it, but my visual person is seeing it when I'm teaching. So super helpful. Yeah, great series. Yeah. Jim, you, you made a good choice. This has been Michael and Sue Laprise with HaloBySue.com reminding you that the love of learning helps to design the life you'd love to live. Back to you, Jack. Um, next up, I have a question for myself from Michael. Michael says, I was wondering if you ever add spices to meads like cinnamon or vanilla. And the answer is indeed yes. And what you're talking about is a classification of meads known as methylogens. And methylogens include any mead made with spices and or Herbs. So if you use a spice or an herb, technically it's a methylogen. Of course, if you use a fruit, then it's a melamal. So if we have a, a mead that uses fruit and an herb, which one is it? And if you went by the letter of the law, it seems, and by most of the mead competitions from what I can tell, it would be, if it, once you put spices or, or herbs into it, it becomes a methylogen, even if it's also a melamal, and it would be a methylogen if you entered it. But I'm not sure I'm right about that, because I'll tell you the truth about mead competitions. I do not really care. I don't really care. I actually do not care for the majority of meads out there, because I find them to be too sweet. I like my meads very well attenuated, uh, and that means that they have lots of alcohol and they are dry. Uh, and if you want to have a, a, a sweetness to them, I prefer what you'd call an off-dry. And that's where there's enough of a fruit character to the mead that it, it gives you this, this, this feeling of sweetness even though it's still a dry mead. And that's actually a pretty cool thing to do. But when it comes to, to seasonings and, and things like this, herbs and spices, let's talk a little about some methylogens that I make and, and, and you know what I use to do them. Uh, number one, you mentioned cinnamon and vanilla. Well, I do a mead called that I call Sinvin Gin, and Sinvin Gin is made with cinnamon, vanilla, and ginger. Now, I am really big on, when I say cinnamon, I actually mean cinnamon, and the majority of what you would buy in the grocery store is uh, labeled cinnamon isn't. Celion Cinnamon, C-E-Y-L-O-N, Celion Cinnamon. Uh, versus cassia cinnamon, and uh, it's a it's a milder heat that you get out of Cilion. There's a lot of health benefits to it. It's just a far superior product. And unlike if you had stick cinnamon that hadn't been ground yet, it's really easy to tell the difference. Cilion is kind of flexible. It doesn't ever get really really hard. I guess it could be done, but I've never seen it that way. And I use the three of those together in this Sinvin gin. And how much? Well, you know, usually for me, it's going to be something like uh, I, I try to make things simple for myself. So I would use in my Sinvin gin uh, probably two vanilla beans uh, split lengthwise and dropped in. 
I'm sorry, one vanilla bean split, this is per gallon, one vanilla bean split lengthwise and dropped in, uh, about five good-sized chunks of, in a, uh, of ginger chopped and peeled uh, and, and dropped in. And then as far as the cinnamon, about one stick of celery on cinnamon is usually enough, maybe a stick and a half. Uh, I do kind of, like I do all things of all cooking, I'll take records so I know what I did, but generally I kind of trust my gut. And, and using the amounts. That's actually a fantastic methylogen. If I was going to enter a meet in a competition, it would be one that I would seriously consider entering. Um, it has so many different ways that it, it takes you to different places, and it works really good with like an orange blossom or a clover honey. I've made it also with a buckwheat honey, which is a much stronger honey. It was good, but it wasn't as good. It didn't let those... Three different uh, spices come through. Another, I guess you'd call it spice, herb, what have you, that I really like to use in meads is one I think is very underused is mint. Uh, mint has a really interesting way that it shows up in meads. It It's not there heavily in the front side of, of the taste. It's once you swallow the mead, it's kind of there afterwards. And when I've my my favorite meat I've ever done with mint in it is a cucumber mint, and to do that I use two cucumbers chopped up, thrown in the fermenter, and just a big handful of fresh mint leaves cut off of of you know one of my mint plants outside, and I shove that in the fermenter, dumped the hot water on it to get it pasteurized, added the honey, you know did the normal process, fermented it out, and it was one of those means where people could get the mint. And they knew there was something else. And they knew that they knew what it was, but they couldn't tell what it was. And what I mean by that is they were like, I know that flavor. I know that flavor, but I can't tell you what it is. And every single person that tried it when you said, it's cucumber, went, that's what it is. Like they, It was there, but yet I think it was so, such a, a wild concept for people to think about the fact that you'd made meat out of cucumbers. And that that would be good. But if you think about cucumber and mint, it's a pretty you know solid place to be. And, and you can use so many different herbs, spices, and things like that. My probably most requested mead by people and probably my best creation of all time is three flowers blend. And per gallon, that is a quarter cup each of elderflowers, chamomile flowers, um, and heather flowers. And those three go together in a very, very interesting way. And I have found that that is also, on some level, in some way, a fermentation accelerator and a clarifying agent. When those things drop, they take everything out of that suspension with them. So there are times where I'll use like a couple tablespoons of that in a mead, even though I'm really not going for the flavor contribution. That's obviously a lot less than, you know, I've, I've gotten it now where I just pre-make up a big jar of Three Flowers Blend, and so a gallon gets three-quarters of a cup. It's a pretty significant amount. So if you compare that to a tablespoon of two, it's a very small contribution to the whole. Those are the big ones that I, that I do, uh, but I also find that some spices really work well with fruits. So again, you're there. Is it a methylogen? Is it a melamol? I don't care. They're all mead. That's kind of how I feel in the end. One of the greatest pairings that I've ever done is simple uh, apple and ginger. And I did that with like per gallon 
uh, like it was either three or four Fuji apples just chopped up and thrown in the fermenter. And uh, I did about eight. I remember that one very clearly. I did about. I wanted a lot of ginger. I did like eight sticks of ginger, and these were basically like small French fry size pieces. So like a half a French fry matchstick French fry. So about the you know half, three four inches long and about you know uh, matchstick fry size. Put those in there, hot water, etc. And that was so good that I turned around and I did a pear ginger. And I used Asian Kajuro pears. These are pears that actually turn orangey kind of color as they ripen. I have a Kajuro pear tree that is uh, it's never gotten big, but it'll still produce like several dozen pears every year. And, uh, man, it's hard to put those into mead because they're so delicious. But they make an incredible pear ginger mead. And that was one that I had people at one of the workshops taste where I did an orange blossom and a clover honey. I made the meads on the same day with the same use, uh, the same the same yeast, with pears taken off the same tree on the same day, and I actually cut all the pears up and mixed them together and split them in half, right? So I mean, it's, it's, it's exactly the same amount of ginger. I weighed it. I think it was like two ounces of ginger or something like that per batch, and I made that. And they were both fantastic. But it was amazing the difference in the two of them just by using a different honey. And I did that so people could taste the difference of having something that was completely the same except for the type, the varietal of honey. And again, I believe it was uh, orange blossom and clover that we did those with. I don't know if you would call it a spice. I've done a rose mead uh, that, I, that I thought came out really great. Uh, I did a half of a cup of rose petals, dried rose petals, and a quarter cup of dried uh, little pieces of rose hips. And uh, same thing, three pounds to the gallon, what have you. And Michael Jordan, man, you know how he is. He gets he gets out there sometimes, and he tastes it out. He goes, Jack, man, man, this is pretty, man. I'd like to take a bottle of this home to Mama and have a steak with this, man. Wow. And it, it was pretty solid mead, man. And it was, you know, rosemead. It just sounds cool because rosemead, rosemead, California, and what have you. Um, and, and that was a fantastic, you know, what hot or spicy, but it definitely were using an herbage type thing there. So we're again in that methylogen world. And that's probably one of also one of the better things I've ever come up with. And it, it's stupid simple when you think about it. And then vanilla, I have found, it's easy to overdo. It's easy easy to overdo. Remember this. You can add vanilla to your mead whenever you want to. So if you're not sure, you know, get a, get good quality vanilla beans. Don't use vanilla extract for this. And, you know, put that whole bean in there. But, you know, you could use a half of a bean split in half and taste your mead while it's working. And if you get to a point where you're like, there's not enough vanilla there, Go ahead and take another half of a seed, you know, and, and pour a little bit of hot water over it. Let that water cool down. That'll pasteurize it. And then add the water and the vanilla bean to uh, your fermenter and add some more. It's easy to add more. It's difficult but not impossible to take it out. The way you would take it out is you make a batch of plain mead and blend it. And it's, it's actually really not a bad idea for, for home mead makers to make up a couple gallons of plain old classic three pounds to the gallon, nothing added to it mead, and have it sitting somewhere with proper air locks on it, and it's just there. 
And if you ever get into a mead where you really just feel like I overdid something, you know, backblend it and bring that character and contribution back down. I'd like to say I'd do that, but I don't. I just kind of go, you know, that's going to be, we're going to see what happens to that one when we age it, uh, which is also another way to take this on. But those are the different types of things I've done with spices. I've never done like a hot pepper meat or something like that. It's just not something I'm really looking to do. I've played around a little bit with Grains of Paradise, which is a, a, a spice that's pretty good. But, I mean, you can just go ahead and think of the flavor of something and think of what it goes with and come up with your own ideas and give it a shot. And I think mead making is one of those adventures that most people that take it tend to enjoy it. Uh, so that brings us up to the end of another show. I want to remind you, you can help support our show in a very painless way. That's by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. And I have a, a product that fits right in with my question for today, though it wasn't planned that way. This is the Nutra Ninja Pro, and there's rebuilt models on uh, Amazon. Now, I was just at a, at a grocery store, not a grocery store, like a department store with my wife. And they had these things, this exact model. It's the newer model number, but it's the 1,000-watt, two-cup, two-different-cup machine. Um, and they were $120. And this machine, rebuilt with warranty, et cetera, is $69.99 with free shipping. Right now, they only have three in stock, so that means that if you're listening to this show tomorrow, somebody probably bought those three and you're out of luck. But you might want to go ahead and get one of these you've been waiting to. I did a lot of research, and I have my write-up. You can read it today if you want to. I went through several different machines, narrowed it down to two, and of those two, this the, the Ninja made the final cut for a small blender-type uh, thing. Because my wife likes to make smoothies and stuff like this. How does this fit with mead-making? You know that apple-ginger mead? Throw your apples and ginger in here and puree them before you add them to the uh, fermenter. You'll get a lot more contribution of the flavor, and anything you can think of that you might want to do that with would work there. I'll also give away some pretty good recipes with the write-up today and tell you how this thing can help improve your health and save you from things like type 2 diabetes, really. So check it out. It's at tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com. Remember, all my reviews do have uh, categories that you can check into. And uh, if it's there, I own it, I use it, I've spent my own money on it, or I wouldn't ask you to. And last but not least, you can help support the show by becoming a member of the MSB. To learn more about that, just go to survivalpodcast.com and click on Members. And with that, let's talk about our, our uh, song of the day today. Uh, this song is by Jimi Hendrix, and it's called Hear My Train A-Comin'. And when John Adams sent me this small list to fill this weekend with, he said only a real Jimi Hendrix fan has probably ever heard this song. Oh my God! Now, nah, nah, I've heard Jimi Hendrix. I've listened to everything there was Jimi Hendrix back in the eighties, uh, when I used to listen to a lot more music, sort of more like this, right? And uh, so I have to have heard this. So I put the song on and go. You know what? I've never heard this song before. How come I never heard this song before? I mean, I listened to Jimi Hendrix in the eighties, and we got everything we could with Jimi Hendrix on it, and. He was dead by then, so I know he didn't make no new music. Why, 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 why didn't I hear this? So I looked it up on Song Facts, and it turns out that he never actually made a recording of this for release. Now, fortunately, there were recordings of it. And I believe it was 94, if my memory serves me right, that did a, a blues, you know, a blues special edition release of a bunch of Jimi Hendrix stuff. And that's what it was publicly released. But he played it for several like TV shows and things like that, or uh, appearances on radio stations, just kind of off the cuff. And it's an incredible piece of music. 
The guitar is amazing. The, the, the soul in this song is amazing. And it, it's one of those things where you listen to music like this by someone like Hendrix who left us far too young and go, what if? What if Jimmy didn't go out in a blaze? What if Jimmy was still around? What would he have come up with? If it was more stuff like this, boy, it would have been worth having around, huh? Um, this is a fantastic song. It's not going to be everybody's cup of tea, but I'll tell you what I like, and I think it's a great one to go out on a weekend with. And this was when music still really meant something. You, I'll tell you one thing. We talk about music being formulaic and bubblegum today, and a lot of it is. There's no formulaic here. There's no bubblegum here. This is authentic. This is real. And I think this is real good. With that, I hope you enjoy your weekend. This has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Well, I hear my train of coming. Hear my, hear my train of coming.